Fendi, like the bag. <laughs> this is the Ivory Fuse Podcast. Cheerio, cheerio. We are back. I am Mr. Fox, and I have a special guest. I'm very special. <laughs> so, we've been watching the American Crime Story, the current season, uh, which is the impeachment that follows the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal, and then the outside variables along the way. Um, so we're currently up to season, episode eight. Um, and from what I understand, there's two more episodes, uh, nine and ten, and then that's that's it for the season. So I wanted to do this episode because, you know, having lived through that, just the Monica Bill Clinton thing in real time, um, you know, Linda Tripp was essentially the target in the news back in the mid nineties. And I was probably what, like 13, 12 or 13 mm. years old at the time. And I remember thinking, why would you tape a friend of yours? You know what I mean? Right. Um, and I was like, okay, I don't like her. I don't know her, but I just don't, I don't think that was cool. <laughs> um, but, you know, as time went on, I kind of, you know, grew out of that and, like, learned things as I got older. You know, the blue dress, the star report, uh, watching, you know, the um, the televised thing where Bill Clinton said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. <laughs> right. A lot of bits and pieces, and then, you know, the Paula Jones thing. You know, as time went on, the Paula Jones thing got less attention. Um, the Jennifer Flowers thing, don't remember much about that. Um, and then all the other things that are explored during the season leading up until this point. I was like, oh, wow, that, that also happened. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, we start with the first episode with the quote-unquote, I'm using air quotes as I'm sitting here, suicide of uh, Bill Clinton's, I guess, right-hand man? Yeah, kind of. I think he was a, the attorney on the uh, the Whitewater uh, land deal. Right. Uh, his name was... Um, Vince Foster. Vince Foster. Um, now, for those of you that don't know, I had to find this out a couple of days ago. I went to go look. So the Whitewater controversy or Whitewater scandal was a thing that was occurring when Clinton was Arkansas governor. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And the Forrester guy was really tight with the Clintons and... I think the three of them and another person were they had this uh development thing going on uh where they were to develop it was a high rise or apartments or something it was 
Real estate. Yeah, it was real estate. I can't remember what specific kind of real estate, but um, and what ended up happening is that the the development and the deal fell through. So somebody had the bright idea to cover the losses with, um, I believe loans mm-hmm. that I believe weren't credible. So it's interesting that like Whitewater doesn't really have like a, a front seat or a passenger seat in like the first half of the season because that was essentially that scandal was essentially what put the Clintons on the radar as far as Ken Starr was concerned. Right. Okay. Um, but what I realized is that, like, as we were watching the season, um, it was they would show they would show little bits and then move on, and mm-hmm. then it's kind of like they were, uh, I guess, framing the I guess the foundation for what was to occur. But also, what I realized is that, you know. Parties outside of Linda, Monica, and Bill, and you know the White House, uh, either had saw this as a political opportunity to take down the Clintons, mm-hmm. or a personal financial opportunity to change, I guess, their sad lives or whatever. Um, so. You know, they had the whitewater thing and the guy, you know, drove to the, to the park and, you know, this is what's happening on the show in the first episode. And you don't actually see him, the rest of it, uh, in the car, but you and I had this conversation where you know, it was it had long been a conspiracy that he didn't actually commit suicide, he was murdered. Right. And I sat back and I thought about it. I was like, this is like Jeffrey Epstein before Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Um, But anyway, like, the way it's staged in the first episode is that Linda Tripp was essentially working, had a coveted position working for the Forrester guy. Right. Yeah, she was his executive secretary or something. Right. Um, which was not too far down the hall from the the woman who um what was her name? Deborah something. Uh one of one of the many accusers. Um but oh. this one didn't grow wings, essentially. I mean, it kind of did, but... Um, I can't think of her name, but like for a couple of episodes, there was kind of this thing where she was trying to get um, Linda to be on her side against Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. but Linda could only speak of what she perceived before it happened and I guess the condition or the uh, the after 
events in the hallway. Um, and it's, I think by the time, I think the second or third episode happened, um, Linda was like, you know, it looked like, and this isn't verbatim, I'm just, I guess, kind of paraphrasing. It looks like, it looked like you wanted it to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but that's essentially small potatoes, given that by this point, you know, Paula Jones is kind of in the forefront outside of the Monica Lewinsky thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Linda is kind of in the background working with like a literary agent or a friend of hers in New York City um, who kind of is like the tabloid gossip person in high society that's like, you know, nobody really cares about this, nobody really cares about that. Like, what else do you have? Right. And, you know, at this point, Linda and Monica um, have crossed paths a considerable amount of time. Um, Linda is no longer working as the executive assistant, and she has been moved, I think, once or twice by now. Um, and by this point, she had been working in D.C. about 20, 15, 20 years. And Linda, you know, shout out to Sarah Paulson, you know, for, before I go further, you know, Sarah Paulson, like, you can't even tell it's really her. Um, I mean, you can't get past the lips. You know, she does so much with the lips. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> she does so much with the lips, and it's amazing. But Sarah Paulson, um, Beanie Fieldstein, who plays uh, Monica Lewinsky, uh, the, she is the younger sister of Jonah Hill. Uh, Clive Owen plays Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edie Falco plays Hillary Clinton. Colby Smulders from How I Met Your Mother as Ann Coulter takes me out every time. Right. Um, Paula Jones. Uh, I don't remember the name of the actress that plays Paula Jones, but she's on point. Mm-hmm. Um, from the it, braces to the twang. It takes a dramatic turn. <laughs> um. <laughs> so the first half of the season at this point you know there is a lot of outside things happening while you know the Monica Bill Clinton thing is going on um, and you know it's clear that you know the Republicans have <clears throat> long had a thing, I guess, against the Clintons or, you know, for whatever reason. Um, it could be the Whitewater thing. It could be the reputation and the image that they have um, at this point. And this is kind of something that is playing out uh, separate or alongside the the accusations and the allegations because by this point I don't think the political members because we're not even to like Ken Starr and the FBI and stuff yet um, well the, yeah I think at this point Whitewater was probably happening 
Right. But it, because that was where the, the investigation started with that. It's, right. The, the idea was that they couldn't get anywhere with what they were trying to find. So they looked for other ways to do what they were trying to do. Right. Um, which, to be fair, you know, investigative authorities, um, that's no secret that they keep things ongoing. Right. Um, because the goal here is to, I guess, turn somebody in or have a case or try to prove something. And, you know, essentially they were in the background, you know, because again, the Whitewater thing didn't really take a front seat or even a passenger seat in the series at this point. Yeah, um, it, it kind of never really became that big of a thing once the the other scandals that became part of that investigation moved to the front of the line, you know, Lewinsky and the others. Right. Um, and And I'm aware that, you know, the way it's portrayed some parts of this um this season is again like a dramatic turn <laughs> um takes a dramatic turn i'm sure uh there's a, a bulk of this stuff that either didn't happen or actually happened but it wasn't as heavy as they're making it seem yeah i i, I I'm sure they've taken some liberty with circumstances and creative things people said. Call it. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's fairly factual, just because of, of recollection. But it, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, like I don't think there was an actual um, woman uh, that Judith Light plays that was like in the background, kind of like pushing Paula Jones. Like I don't recall in any of the conferences then yeah, when Paula I mean, Jones like a woman being there kind of in the same in the same light as Judith like Judith like character. Um but I will say that like I didn't know that Monica was um repeatedly trying to get back into working in the White House. Yeah. Um, and, you know, looking at the, the episode so far, you know, by the time we got to, like, episode eight, I was like, if I didn't know any better, I could see how the way she was moving and Vernon Jordan's involvement um could look like this, you know, she was like a, a man-starved woman. Right. Um, and that, you know, the gifts and the opportunity with Vernon Jordan as far as the Revlon job could be perceived as um, a barter system for, you know, sleeping with the well, quote unquote, allegedly sleeping with the president. Right. Um, but 
by the time the FBI or was it the CIA um, got involved, I was like, okay, now I see what's going on. And then Kenneth Starr and a young Brett Kavanaugh. Yes, that Mm -hmm. Brett Kavanaugh. Um, Like, they just came in like a dark horse and just took it in a whole other direction. And it just was like, they were pressuring Monica Lewinsky so hard. And it was merely all they had on their side or in their in their um, hand was speculation and theories and, you know, all this other stuff. But what none of them were aware of, and this is another thing about this season that I liked, was that we got to see a... a I wouldn't say a stronger characterization, but more insight as to the kind of person Bill Clinton was mm-hmm. or assumed to be. Now, I don't want to get on here talking like I knew the guy. Um, right. But, you know, for me, there were two or three instances in the season so far where I was like, oh, wow, you know, Bill Clinton isn't just, you know, a mopey, dopey. Uh, all shucks, all shucks, likable president uh, guy you want to have a beer with. Bullshit, yeah, yeah, because you know, again, growing up, all I really remember of him was that you know, he had the twang, he could play the saxophone, he could charm the room, and clearly charm the pants off of you know what. I'm not even going to go there, yeah, just, uh, yeah. <laughs> all right, yeah, just meh. <laughs> Don't mind sometimes, but also like going in, <laughs> going into the show, I was like, you know, you have the Deborah lady down the hall, you got Paula Jones, Jennifer Flowers, um, and I was just like, yeah, he he was kind of what was the word you used? I think it was last week, week before last, um, where he was just kind of. Not not perverted, but like, um, or was it lecherous? No, it wasn't lecherous. I mean, that does sound like a word I would use, but I don't think I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would have remembered that, but it's it's a word I've probably used once or twice when referring to somebody that just was um, ver- had a very scuzzy energy about him like a way is a word i like skeevy that's what it was yeah Uh, so you know by maybe episode three or four i was like okay this is this is kind of what he's like but you know that was one instance and then two you know i think a lot of people forget that he is a lawyer yeah. Um, and if you go into this season hoping for like a melodramatic Hillary and Bill kind of thing, yeah, you're not going to get that the whole way through. Um, matter of fact, Hillary doesn't even pop up until what, episode 
eight as far as performance. Like you may see like her shoulder or her yeah, face asleep or whatever, but yeah, there have been a few like appearances of Edie Falco's Hillary Clinton throughout the series, but no scene. I think she might have had one or two lines like in one of the earliest ep- earlier episodes, like very beginning, and then she just kind of was there, and you you saw her in the her name in the credits, and then this week was the first. Uh, this is probably the second because I think she was in part of last week's episode too. Uh, um, but yeah, like you got to experience Bill Clinton as allegedly a, a skeevy guy that just could not. Um, I wouldn't say control himself, but he was in these situations where. Even as he, as they put it, or he put it on the show, that he, it's assumed that he didn't um, pursue it or initiate it. Um, it's just something that happened, or they, sm- the 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 individual misconstrued whatever it was, and it wasn't what it seemed and he didn't do the thing or that wasn't the whole point or whatever. Yeah. There was always some sort of you know, gray thing. area. Yeah. Enough, enough, a lot gray, of smoke. yeah, enough, enough inconclusiveness to, yeah. I'm, to, to leave kind of star empty handed. Yeah. Like the, the, the original matter, the Whitewater thing that Kenneth Starr was investigating. Whatever happened, happened, but it was done in such a way that it was they weren't going to get to where they wanted to go, which was where they ultimately ended up, but they weren't going to get to that impeachment and then hopefully, or if in their mind, hopefully conviction. With Whitewater, it just wasn't they weren't able to get information to get that way. So they had to go other routes. That was, in, that was the interesting part of how they portrayed it. Because you didn't really see that much of, of Ken Starr's people until, what, episode six or so when uh, the FBI got hooked up with Monica through Linda Tripp. Right, they tried to... Um... Which was kind of, I think, to me, unethical, the way they went about it, um, because you approach Monica, which looked like Tyson's Corner or Capital City Mall. Um, it's probably Pentagon City, because uh, they worked at that, the Pentagon, so they would have. That right at that point, uh, Linda Tripp had been shuffled down to the Pentagon, <laughs> as had Monica. <laughs> as it turns out, so. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, they had both been shuffled down there. And at that point, they were tight. So, as Monica thought they were. Um, because Linda was trying to get a book deal or make a lot of money to essentially, you know, change her mundane life. Because um, Linda Tripp, from the characterization of this season is like somebody that 
thought more of herself. Mm-hmm. And um, she was very much an assertive woman. Like, she will approach you in the parking garage if you're a party to her her reassignment or... And I get it. It's like, you guys are not giving me anything, so I'm going to ask you to your face. Right. I'm going to put what, you on the spot. Put you in a position to give me an answer or tell me to F off. Which I like. Which I like in people is that because a lot of people what a lot of people don't know is that in this life you actually have people walking this earth that have like a trauma based response to being confronted after they've been playing games and being ambiguous and all this other shit and it's just like now we both know you honestly would not like that if somebody had done the same to you right um, but on the flip side, it was like she um saw this as an opportunity and like crossed several like social codes, like girl code, girlfriend code, like yeah, it was she, it was crazy. She was a bad friend. She and was. not and really not that much of a decent coworker. <laughs> No, no. She was more concerned with what everyone else was doing, it seems, than, you know, earning her work. <laughs> right. And, you know, she she would go, like, around that office and, like, kind of throw her weight around, like, oh, well, I know this person. And she even, like, hyped up what she, you know, quote, unquote, knew. Right. When the investigative reporter came over, Sniff Norrell, um, who he himself um, was kind of in a quandary where it was just like, you know, you guys are kind of pushing me to like get the story out. And like, but Linda had been like messing with him yeah, for a had, while. She had been kind of trying to get him to buy into her story when she didn't really have that much of a story at the time. Right, because she hadn't even started taping her by then, right? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think uh, Lucian Goldberg had told her to start recording. Right, like, I think for a while she didn't know. And then, like, by the time she, Linda had, like, all these tapes and actually told her, Lucian's mouth was on the floor. Right. And that was another funny tidbit where she was like, it's not, she said something about New York, but you're in D.C. Um, <laughs> about the tape, like taping people, like the laws. Are oh, different. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in di- every state has different laws for who needs to know when a recording is being made. And she was in Maryland, as I recall. I think Linda lived in Columbia. Isn't that what they said? Anyway, she lived in Maryland, and Maryland requires both parties to know it's happening. Right, so whereas New York, only one party has to. Right, work. only the, you know, which basically allows you to secretly record somebody. Um, um, but yeah, Linda had been uh, kind of playing, you know, stringing this investigative reporter along, 
Um, and where it was like she um, she wasn't really dropping any names, but she was kind of leading him to believe, oh, you know, I have something. There's an intern, can't give you her name, and she's dating the president. And then she would play like a little snippet, and mm-hmm. it's like Monica crying. Right. <laughs> like, that's your... You're not going to convince an investigative reporter that any of this is worth <laughs> his time with right. that kind of bullshit. Like, because like at the mo- at the very least, you don't really have anything concrete in that little snippet. And at the very most, it's like a girl crying about somebody that may or may not exist, right? Or somebody who may or may not be the individual you claim. Right is being referred to. Uh, yeah, she didn't do that very well, and you know, Michael Isakoff was like, um, "No, <laughs> right? You got me all the way down here in the middle of the night, and this is what you have." I, right. No. Mm. I could have had a V eight. Um, I could be asleep <laughs> right now. Is what I could be. So, but also in the background, I don't know if we'll see him later on be like a a bigger party to this. Um, Matt Drudge. I've so I vaguely remember mention um, of the Drudge Report back then during right. all this. I mean, that probably is what launched him into global fame. Or oh, least, for sure. You know, just, just that. You know, he. I think he was known, but he wasn't, you know, like hardly anybody read him. Probably it's a tri- it's a trip though. Like he's he initially started out as like the manager of a movie studio gift shop or something. Yeah. Um, but he knew more than the than the next person and he shared it before they knew what the hell was going on. Right. Um and it started as early as working in the gift shop. And on the show so far, like he was a dumpster diver. Um, found like thrown away memos of like half stories or a fourth of a story. And mind you, this is before like the bloggers and Perez Hiltons and shit like that that we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, like he would be walking down the lot or walking down the alley behind one of the big buildings um, and then just dig through emails and messages and stuff and we go home, make a few phone calls and have a story of some kind that was interesting. Um, And, you know, this was no different. Um, I believe... He um, he managed to work his way into what what was what was that the Washington Times? Yeah, I think so. Where uh, the investigative reporter was working, um, and you know, snooze and and charm and. But the thing that uh, Matt Drudge had that I think Linda lacked was, I guess, a little credibility. And he, he didn't look like he was um, 
depressed or thirsty. Yeah, and I think he seemed like he it always seemed like he knew he he had a, a an ability to recognize a story. Right. Um and 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 also how to convince someone else to be either give him the information or pursue the information. Like I feel like he had a a sense of things that you know is a does served him well. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, he definitely had intuition, which is that's um, the word I was trying to get to. He had he had a lot of intuition, um, and I think he also had well the ability to read between the lines in conversation. Um, you know that whole that whole scene with him and you said Mike Ishnikov. Isikoff, yeah, Isikoff, Michael Isikoff. Um. You know, at his desk or the table in Washington Times where, you know, at this point, Michael had a story. It wasn't, it wasn't fully formed yet. And I think it was somewhere between he had a lead and, you know, it was on the brink of being a big deal for him. Yeah, I think he he like knew there was something. He just hadn't found enough of the thing to be able to get his editor to go along. Yeah, she was scaredy cat. She yeah. was she was very much a scaredy cat. Um, but unfortunately, you know, Mad Drudge managed to get the story out before him. Right. Which well, Drudge kind of stole the story from him. <laughs> But it's funny how they never show you, or did they, as to how he was able to do that. Well, I think it just goes to what we were just talking about. His ability, you know, his innate ability to kind of just intuit when there's things people aren't saying that he might be able to wheedle out of them or, you know, pick up on nonverbal cues that tell him he's onto something more than someone's letting on or something like that. I think he just had to, you know, he, he sensed enough of it and then was able to persuade information out of people. Yeah. I think, I think he was, you know, had a skill at manipulating people basically. Yeah. That's a dicey skill to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but you and I both know that like, the the media world is can be pretty cutthroat, mm-hmm. especially like investigative investigative reporting, right? Um, and this is before like iCloud and you know offline servers and all that security stuff. Like these people were still working uh, with typewriters and shit like that. Yeah, and Blackberries were high tech. I saw Blackberry in one of the episodes, I think. I was like, oh, shit, here we go. No. um, So, you know, he... So Matt Drudge started out on, you know, the season, wonderfully played by Billy Eichner from Billy on the Street, whom we love over here at Irish Use Podcast, um, as, like, an outside uh, tertiary character, along with Ann Coulter and... um, Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, George Conway. I'm trying to think some of the other now like significantly large names thanks to the last few years. Uh, yeah, so... That were like, you know, they were integral to this whole thing. They were actively in the political universe uh, even way back then. I mean, this was 25 years ago. Yeah, almost. Or yeah, more. Almost. Yeah, almost. I want to say almost 30. Because mm-hmm. um, another thing is that you know, this, the season, they they flash back and forth. Yeah, it jumps around in the timeline a little bit. Um, because, it, you know, it's connecting the pieces. Right, it's connecting the pieces to, of course, the season finale. Right. Um, but a point, another point I wanted to make was that, you know, a lot of the people that are minor during the course of this season essentially become big names from this scandal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, pretty much everybody we just rattled off uh, and had that is shown with any significant role in the show is now a fairly significant player in whatever field. You know, Michael Isakoff is still a reporter. Matt Drudge is big. Matt, Matt Drudge is you know, and made the an entire report. yeah has made an entire business out of his <laughs> particular kind of journalism. I'll use air quotes, but you know, like every single like significant name we know today, all seem to have roots in that scandal, right? And some of them were in their twenties at the time, twenties and thirties at the time. Yeah, um... you know, like they were young in the business that they were in. And they were just, you know, essentially walking mouthpieces um, that had some connections, um, were a bit of a mover and shaker, um, but they didn't have their name tied to, like, a historical event. And that's another thing. It's like, you know, how you know, historical events are essentially like stepping stones for people. Mm-hmm. Good, you know, good, bad. Um, even though they weren't like part of like the kind of star thing piece of it, they were just essentially one of hundreds of pundits, um, Republican, independent, what have you, that just did not see it for the Clintons. Um, Right. And another thing, you know, we're up to, you know, episode nine, we're about to watch um, tomorrow. I know it came out this week and then episode 10 comes out next Tuesday. Um, Is that Hillary Clinton um, was essentially was essentially the cleanup woman. <laughs> she she to an extent was a fixer. Yes, <laughs> in, in a I'm lot of ways, apparently. It's also, a Betty Wright song. I'm just screaming at myself. <laughs> in, in in so many ways, she was kind of a fixer. 
so for his mess, you know, she came behind and cleaned up the mess, or at least you know mitigated it a little bit (laughs) to save his his political career, right? Um, Because she knew it would benefit her, right? Like it goes without saying, like Hillary Clinton. You know, I give her a lot of positive positive comments and compliments just as an observer. Um, you know, as someone that is uh, very very intelligent, um, calculated, she she knows the game and how to play it well. Mm-hmm. Um, she does not particularly care how she is perceived. But there's no cut cards with Hillary Clinton. Right. Um, she may not go over well with certain people. Um, you know, for a time I was almost that person. Um, because when I think this was around the time right before she went up, uh, right around the time I think she was the, was it Secretary of State? Mm-hmm. In New York, right? Well, she was the Secretary of State for four years, I think, with Obama. But she had, years. but she had like a seat in New York. At, oh yeah, she was. Sen- she was the senator from New York. Okay, was, so it was a senator, one of the two senators from New York, right? With um, uh, Schumer. Okay, so this was a. Uh, I think this was before any of that, um, and she was just. Um, I think on the hill or something and they were like asking her questions and stuff and at that time I was kind of like surrounded by people that just did not particularly care for her right. and of course you know if I'm a friend of somebody that has an opinion or whatever I'd listen I'd be like I can definitely see that like but again at that point I didn't have like a full picture because again like it's moments in the media where she's on the TV and she says her thing. And, um, you know, I always perceived her as somebody that wasn't like the warmest person. Yeah. And I know that that played against her when she tried to go uh, run against Donald Trump for president. Um, I mean, which by that point, she had not too stellar credibility and reputation mm-hmm. where it was just like yeah you know we didn't forget about Whitewater we didn't forget about the Clinton thing we didn't forget about this and that and you know here you are at this podium and we can't forget about the email thing right well we're not going to allow anyone to forget about it either right about any yeah. of those things none of which were particularly relevant right but anything but, you know, we're definitely at this point, like, a culture due to, you know, Gen Z. I know. Is it Gen Zs? Um, that have, like, a, a fishbowl perspective mm-hmm. um, where, where it's like, it's this one thing in this fishbowl that we're just focused on as we, you know, orbit and swim around and live in this fishbowl. Well, I think the teenager, the current 
Gen Z teenagers, the young younger generations, uh, because they grew up in you know their whole lives have existed essentially with Facebook part of them, right? Or and social media, Facebook and any other social media that exists now has existed in their entire lifetimes. Like my two young cousins, one is fifteen and one is twelve. They have had social media in their life their whole lives. They are they're more attuned to the manipulation. I think they're more conscious that they can be, you know, that they're what they see on social media is siloed into everybody that agrees with them. Right. And I think they recognize that 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 is a thing that they have to be mindful of and find their way to to collect more knowledge. That isn't being, you know, filtered and manipulated and algorithmically generated to make you to alter your behavior because that's what social media is doing to us. Well, it's not doing it to me, child. Mm. But I, again, me being an observer, I am conscious of the fact that that's the way it is, mm-hmm. um, and that that's always a case whether you're somebody famous or you're just a regular schmo like me. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's the key. That's, you know, and I think more and more people your age and my age and older are becoming conscious of the negative influence of social media and that it's power to, to alter the way people perceive the world around them. We're seeing it play out with a lot of things that are going on right now. Well, you know, I've, I've always said actually for a while now that, you know, I guess due to social media or the way the culture has kind of gone down, you know, with lack of critical thinking is that if you can change the narrative, you can change people's minds. Yeah. Or, you know, more, if you can control the narrative, you can, Control people's minds. Control people's minds. Right. You know, and, and you know, these Facebook papers and all this other stuff that's come out will, will ultimately, hopefully, help break that ability. You know, but anyway, that's off topic from what we were talking about. No, not um, really. Um, I actually wanted to, I guess, the American crime story topic was, I guess, my way of expounding upon some of the parallels between, you know, what's reality, what's actually happening, and what's being reported from an opinion of somebody. That mm-hmm. people, people go on the internet and check out and follow and read. Because there are definitely parallels between, you know, what we just talked about and the Matt Drudge thing, the Drudge Report, um, how it can kind of just snowball in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two of us who were younger at that time, kind of being, I guess, wrapped up in that mm-hmm. of conjecture and perception um from a, a culmination of like all these different pieces that are scattered. 
And it's, you know, it's kind of fascinating when you think back. When all of this was unfolding, we had cable TV. We had, I think, Fox News existed by then and CNN, of course. But the, there wasn't social media. Social media was bloggers. Social media was a, not a thing, not even a word, that you know, a phrase that people used. But it, that's kind of what it was. That's where it started was, here, I have my own vanity, you know, my own web page me talking about myself and doing my thing and blogging or whatever, you know, that was, that was where we were. And even then these stories took on a life of their own. True. Um, You know, at this point, you know, there's so many, I guess, takeaways as far as life lessons, as far as how the media handles stuff, and which will always be a running theme because, you know, the media is just out for viewership and mm-hmm. ratings and ad, reven- ad, re- ad revenues. Um, there isn't, I guess, a heart and soul to it. And, you know, this is coming from somebody that thought about being a journalist. Can you believe that? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, look where I, I am now. I um, used to do, you know, I was in, in media. So, right. yeah, it's always been cutthroat and there's always bad actors. Uh, but a lot of journalists, many, many are ethical and actually do value, you know, the work is important and getting it right is the, the key consideration. Right. You know, to where, you know, Michael Isikoff being an example in in that story, like he had a story, but he didn't, you know, he continued, he didn't accept just that information that he was receiving. He did further investigation. Right, And it was ultimately to his detriment because somebody with less ethics, basically, published it before he could. You know, so, I mean, it it, it kind of is the same, you know, the same thing as an example of an, a journalist with strong ethics and one with uh, dollar signs in his eyes. You know, who happened to have a skill that enabled him to be able to scoop a lot of stories that more conservative, not in, in this term, conservative media, meaning traditional has a, a structure of ethics that they lived under at the time. Whereas, you know, the Drudge Report was very much what was back then called new media. It didn't follow the rules. You know, it was a dude in his living room publishing on a, you know, some website somewhere. Yeah, he was literally the Napster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a great, you know, that's a, that's a decent enough analogy. That I mean, all of those companies that are, you know, some of them are gone now or have been merged into other companies and are, you know, not the same thing they were. But these companies were the groundbreakers they were creating new media they weren't following the rules so guys like matt drudge paid for a website and chucked it up 
you know, chuck their content up online and didn't matter if it was accurate as long as it got views. Right, which is more of the same of what we have now. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, it's essentially um, a tagline or a byline or a shocking, sensational uh, header to get clicks. Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of people see something like that and it gets retweeted more than it gets read. Right. Nobody and, reads the article attached, which oftentimes on those clickbait headlines doesn't actually say what the headline makes it sound like it says. Right. Like, cause I've done that. I've been like, Oh shit, that's happening. And you click on it and like, well, it might happen. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, hold on. You gave me 5,000 words to tell me yeah, it's not really happening, but Hey, it could. <laughs> yeah. So this is sort of kind of <laughs> maybe possibly sort of, this is a thing. Have. We think it could happen. We have no proof that it has or it hasn't, but yeah, here's, here's a headline to make you think. The world is ending when, in fact, you know, it's it's cloudy. <laughs> right. This is like adjacent down the street, kind of possibly thinking of allegedly could possibly happen. As I often say at work, I when we're discussing a, a thorny subject or a complaint that is outlandish and we like, well, you could get there from where they are but you have to really want to. <laughs> right. Like you can get anywhere if you try enough when it comes to, you know, information. I mean, you can go anywhere with it. You just have to have the determination to accept whatever the ramifications of that might be and not care. It's like, okay, so I lied. Prove it. <laughs> Which nobody's going to go that extra mile to prove it. They just and- move on to the next thing. And even if they try, oftentimes it may have been a lie at the time, but facts come out that may have supported that being the actual truth. And if the facts don't, it doesn't matter because you never can bring back, you can never reel in the lie. Nobody reads corrections. In fact, a lot of times in print media, corrections are put in a place where you probably won't notice them because it's days later and it the story is gone. It's not in the paper anymore. But you see, on Tuesday, we published blah, 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 and we made a mistake. No one will see that. <laughs> it's, it meets an obligation that serves no... It doesn't do anything. Just said, we issued an apology. We issued a correction. Nobody read the correction. It's interesting. It's the cornerstone of where we are now and continues to be. Yeah. I mean, all of that that happened in 92, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 uh, are components of why we are as a society the way we, the going through what we're going through today. We just, we didn't see the warning signs. It's an example of hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, when you look back, you're always going, oh, yeah, should have seen all of this coming. <laughs> if, not the, if not the exact method, then the, the outcome. 
Which, I mean, in this case on the show, like, it was out of control. Yeah. Um, and what I will say is that when I look at, you know, the Paula Jones thing and the Jennifer Flowers thing and the Monica Lewinsky thing, you know, and within the context of the show, that... You know, for the longest time, and I, I want to say probably the last four or five years, you know, the the thing that's been, I guess, the trend is that, and I guess this kind of goes in the direction of hindsight, is that what a lot of people do when, um, you know, they think something controversial that has already occurred they they go back and re-examine it mm-hmm. under uh, you know the Me Too thing. This is one of those things where it was like people re-exam- re-examined um, the Monica Lewinsky Bill Clinton thing um, as like non-consensual. Um, you know, it was harassment. It was this and that and all this other stuff and what I will give the show you know the season of American Crime Story is that during the course um, when Monica would go to see him and you know they would talk and <clears throat> it would always be in that back office for the most part right yeah, the um, president's private study, I think it was called. Right. And, you know, they would exchange gifts. Um, he would ask her about, you know, New York. And um, they actually kissed. I was like, okay. Now this kind of, this turns the, the narrative that a, it was consensual. Um B, both parties were very well aware, allegedly. Um, you know, I want to make sure when I'm talking on stuff that I wasn't there for, I'll say allegedly. Mm-hmm. Um, and although Monica didn't see him on a more regular basis, you know, as to the standard that we would consider, like, we're dating or, right. you know we're in a thing with. Um, I could characterize it as something like that. Mm-hmm. That they were, I guess, boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah. Um, and I'm And I'm saying that as, I guess compare contrast with Jennifer Flowers and Paula Jones. Now, that's not to say that Bill is allegedly 100% innocent. Right. As it pertains to Jennifer Flowers and Paula Jones. Um, But I will say that, because I honestly believe that he actually, allegedly, did go up to that room 
or he was already there and she went up there or whatever. However, they came to be in the same room that he exposed himself to. Her. Yeah. Now here is where the uh, I call it fugazi um, because this he was able to uh, lawyer his way during the kind of star uh, what was that the deposition mm-hmm. um, out of that because up until that point we're like okay did she kiss it. Did she fondle the tea bags? Did she um, did she uh, go under the hood? I don't know. Um, like there, there was nothing. There was no smoking gun by way of dialogue in any of like Paula, the Paula Jones scenes in the show. No, that like gave me any visual that was to the level that insane, that like satisfy what was implied. Right. I know. That was that was a mouthful. Um so I was just like <sighs> what and you know, when I think of that situation where he allegedly exposed himself to her, um, I think of another uh, celebrity that was uh, in a similar situation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, very popular comedian. Um, I'm actually, I've actually seen him. Uh, New Year's Eve at the Meyerhoff. Oh my God, this was probably six or seven years ago. Uh, right. Um, he, uh, so a couple of years ago, there was stuff that came out, a lot of allegations, accusations, right, about this guy. And one of the instances was. He was, I think, in a green room or a party uh, with other women, other people there. And he he announced to the room that he allegedly, again, that he was going to take his dick out and start jerking off. Okay. Right. Um, and I think he wanted the people to excuse themselves or something. But nobody left. And okay. he proceeded to take his dig out and start jerking off. So... Wow. You know, the thing the thing for me was people's response to what was alleged and what he was being accused of. Now, and and likening it to like rape and assault. You know, they were calling him a rapist and he mm. assaults women. And I'm like, do you need a dictionary? 
Right. Because that's not what that is. So the reason why I use that example is to um, to highlight what was going on during the course of the show where it was like, we didn't have a smoking gun, but the way it's portrayed in the show was that like, he didn't, allegedly, he didn't actually consummate with Paula Jones. Right. But whatever it was, I guess it was enough for other parties with Paula Jones, um, again, kind of going for Bill Clinton because he is the big, you know, the game, the big game in this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this would look really great for any lawyer or litigator or any person associated with this this situation. But it there was no rape allegedly, no assault, like the man showed you his penis, allegedly. And you drew a picture of it. Now, whether or not she actually said it takes a dramatic turn back in 1994 or five, right, is is up for debate. But no, but like, it's interesting because the snowball, the snowball job was bigger than was making the actual situation bigger than what it was, right. Um, because people like the Judith Light character, who I don't think actually existed in real life, because um, it's again creative license. Like they, you know, some of these shows tend to add characters um, that either didn't exist or were a compilation of smaller characters. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is that, you know, there are creative, like you said, creative license and making it interesting for television. Right, so... So it was... So I had picked up on that. I was like, she, she and her team, which I think essentially, like... At that point, you know, it was more so a team of opportunists looking to make a name for themselves on the back of Bill Clinton mm-hmm. and his scheming ways. Um, that made it bigger than what it was. It was like, okay, you saw the man's penis. Um, you know, I'm not... I'm... I'm a street smart guy. I'm like, we all know, and I've known something like this since I was like nine or 10 years old. What you're being asked to come up to the hotel room for. Right. Like, you know, 
when um, that Mike Tyson thing, the Mike Tyson and the Desiree Washington thing. And, you know, it's, you know, this kind of, these kind of statements or perspectives that I'm giving is probably going to hurt a lot of people's feelings and step on a lot of toes, but this is reality. Like, you know, when a man calls you or you're being asked to come up to the hotel room, whether it's during the day or after midnight, like, we all know why you're being called up there. Right. It's not to have tea. It's not to have crumpets. It's not to have movie popcorn. It's not to have, you know, a bag of Redenbachers. Right. So, but here's the thing. Like, again, the theme here is perception and speculation. Like, you know, going back to the Mike Tyson, Desiree Washington thing, you know, at that point, Mike Tyson looked very intimidating. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, it didn't really help the perception that he was a boxer. Right. So here you have uh, a gorgeous woman who ran, I think, for Miss America or Miss USA. You know, apparently it's bad etiquette to confuse the two. Apparently, thank so. you, thank you, Kenya Moore. No, um, but he, um, you know, he was put on trial and ultimately jailed and everything. But in my mind, I'm like, yeah, that was definitely, I think, a setup, um, and a conspiracy just to bring somebody else down. But see, a lot of people that live in a fishbowl, like I mentioned earlier don't want to hear, you know, the reality of some things, which tend to be things that happen on this side of the fence. Um, And all that comes with it, they'll they'll never have to worry about or experience. It's just easy for them to dismiss it um, or be offended by it. Anyway, moving on. Um, But no, like, you know, the Paula Jones thing kind of fizzled out um, because I don't even think at this point in the show so far that we've watched that she um, she really didn't get anywhere or he, I guess, settled out for a small amount of money. Yeah, I think it got handled. Um, and then the Jennifer Flowers thing. Now, my question is this to you, sir. Do you actually think he had an affair with her for 12 years or even an affair? You know, I've never really I've never really given it that much thought, to be honest. I'm like I I don't care. (laughs) I mean, that's between him and Hillary, really. Yeah, so... So I've never really, like it wouldn't surprise me, I guess. Just, you know, with the totality of all the other things uh it wouldn't surprise me but i don't i don't don't think that i care (laughs) i just thought i'd ask um you know it's interesting you know the placement of it on the show so far like it just they kind of just dropped it like more than halfway through 
Well, it's um, kind of, you know, and it was kind of a thread in the background of all of it, just like several of the others. Right. And Whitewater and all of it. They were all just vehicles for which, you know, one group of political operatives were trying to use to get to where they wanted to go. Right. Which was to either impeach and convict or um, just make it impossible for Clinton to govern. You know, create enough noise and doubt about everything so that getting things done would be a lot harder. Which would then hurt his reelection campaign. And in reality, the opposite happened. Um, you know, he, he got a second term. Yeah, he managed to win a second term while literally in the middle of that whole mess. And, you know, it just it just didn't do what they were trying to do. Even the thing that ultimately got to the impeachment and the censure still didn't destabilize him, still got a lot done. It just it didn't do what they were trying to do, I don't think. What it did do was lead us to where we are today. And it's probably one of the kickoff political acts over the preceding 25 years, 30 years. So, anyway. So, shout out to uh, Ray Don Chong for her portrayal of Betty, Bill Clinton's secretary. Um, I was late in my discovery. I'm like, hold on. Because I went on Wikipedia and I was like, oh, she's in this? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, of course, nobody's seen Ray, Ray Don Chong in anything recent. Right. Um, it's a small role, role but it's a very important role I've, because I've never um, and we had had this conversation as far as the dynamic or the relationship between presidents and their secretaries right. or even more so like president the role of the first lady mm-hmm. um, like you know when I think of like presidents and their secretaries I think of like the secretaries from like the 60s who essentially were just played a role in covering up things or kind of like being ignorant to things um, and keeping their mouth shut. Mm -hmm. Um, As I'm sure was the case with (laughs) Kennedy's secretary. Um, I'll pin that for a different, for a different day. Mm -hmm. Um, What my what you know what I think that environment was like, but um, and you know Bill's secretary Betty, as she's portrayed in the show, kind of um, was roped into this, yeah, because you know Monica had a direct uh, line to her outside of the office, and you know, was kind of calling her to, like, tip her off or get more information as to what's going on with Bill. And then you had Bill kind of pull her into the office and was, like, I guess, charming or 
setting her up um, to cover his tail when this thing gets out of hand. Mm-hmm. Um, which kind of sucked, um, in my opinion, because it's like, I'm just a secretary, man. Like, right. I don't know what's going on after I close these doors. But secretary loyal to the president, sure, I'll lie for you and cover your butt. A couple more shout outs. You know, Colin Hanks was really, is really good in this. Mm -hmm. Um, And sounds like his father in an entirely disturbing way. That scene in the hotel room, I told you, I closed my eyes and I thought I was watching Man with the One Red Shoe. Mm-hmm. Like, when he gets excited or gets really dramatic, Tom Hanks' voice comes out. I'm like, oh. Yeah, there's very much a, <laughs> there's a strong family resemblance, shall we say. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to need Colin Hanks to stop looking and sounding like his father right now. <laughs> can't help it because those jeans are strong um, you know the guy that plays kind of star is really good um, yes he he, the, play, he is channeling the unmitigated dick baggery of Kenneth Starr in um, a perfect way <laughs> and the actor that portrays the other agent alongside Colin Hanks' character um yeah, I can't remember the so, actor. Right, because there's like so many lesser known actors in, on the show. Um, but they they look and portray the people very well that they're on the show to portray. Um, case in point, Monica's first lawyer. Um, like it's hard not to laugh when he gets to like talking really fast, and mm-hmm. um, the way he kind of connives his way through things, and you know, slams things, and then walks out the room real fast towards the elevator. And I don't even think he was an actual lawyer. He was like uh, um, a medical malpractice guy or something. Yeah, he was an attorney, but I think he was Monica's father's attorney and his father her father was a um a, a doctor. He was a physician. So. Right. Oh, good show, good show, good show. Mm-hmm. Um so we have two more episodes left and you know there'll probably be a part two to this when we finish those two episodes. Um right. But American Crime Story, they really got it going on. And um, Ryan Murphy strikes again. You know, I don't really go up for all of Ryan Murphy's stuff, but, you know, I got hooked to American Crime Story um, when they released the OJ season, um, which you said you'd never seen. No, I haven't seen any of them except for this one. I have uh, the OJ one in there somewhere on Blu-ray. Have to pop it open. Um, Courtney B. Vance's portrayal as Johnny Cochran, amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, John Travolta is Robert Kardashian. No, no, he's not. Uh, David Schwimmer is one of those two is Robert Kardashian. The other one is 
I think the third lawyer on the team. But anyway, um, really, really good, really good. another good one. Um, you know, recommend that to anybody that's listening to this. Um. So yeah, so this is the Irish Youth Podcast. This is Mr. Fox with Mr. Great, and we will catch you guys later. Be sure to follow and subscribe to us on all platforms and social media. Follow the link in the description to everything Irish Youth Podcast. And yeah, we are out. Bye. Bye.